Our scripture reading today is from Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, is Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again, What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Amen. Amen. And welcome once more each week in the weeks leading up to and including Easter. We've been moving and will be moving through the story of the Bible. And we've been doing that. And as we've been doing that, we're doing two things. First, we're, we're picking up these Hebrew scriptures uh, like we've seen the first Christians in the first century picking them up. Uh, we call them now the Old Testament. They call them the law and the prophets. But we've been picking them up like they picked them up, not to, not to bring back a, a theocracy or an ancient culture or a sacrificial system or something like that. But we've been picking them up like they did to see in them what Jesus said was in them, which was him. He said to go looking for him in there, and that's what we've been doing. And secondly, as we've been doing that, each week we've been giving uh, each sort of plot point in the Bible, each week a C name or a C word. And so far we've been through creation, catastrophe, calling, community, Conquest and last week, crown, where we saw last week that by the time of the third king of Israel, Solomon, that the nation had split in two permanently with the northern kingdom, now called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. There were two kingdoms, two lines of kings, and now for the next few centuries you can read in your Bible, uh, and we watch now as these two cousin kingdoms spiral. 
down into corruption and captivity. You're getting a two for one on the C words today. You're welcome. Yeah, and that brings us to today. It's our last week in the Hebrew Scriptures where we're going to meet someone special in the ancient Jewish community. He was a person called a prophet, and the Hebrew prophets had a special role in that community. The prophets had this both terrific and terrible job. Uh, Over and over, uh, over the centuries, as the people of Israel turned away from God, as they turned away from the covenant that they had made with God, Through Moses at Mount Sinai, God raised up these special people called prophets. They were covenant watchers whose terrific and terrible job it was to call the people back to God and the covenant they had made. And as we'll see this week, of course, the people didn't listen. They didn't listen. And one day they would go into exile, into captivity. And one special Hebrew prophet bridged the gap between these two periods of corruption in captivity, and we're going to meet him and look at him today and this morning. His name was Jeremiah, and the word of the Lord, it says, came to Jeremiah three times, and we're going to look at each of these words in turn. God gave him a special message, which I think still resonates with us today. So let's take a look at it and how it fits into the larger story of the Bible. You ready? Yes, here we go. All right, we're going to see today that God called Jeremiah then, and he calls us today to three things. First, he calls us to a better identity. Second, to deeper justice. And third, to a future hope. Identity, justice, and hope. All from Jeremiah. Let's begin number one and take a look at this better identity and begin by asking, well, who was this person, this prophet named Jeremiah? Well, we don't know a lot about him except that he was born during the reign of the most corrupt king that Israel and Judah ever had. His name was Manasseh. And during Manasseh's reign of terror and child sacrifice, Jeremiah grew up until one day something special happened to him. God called him. God called him. Uh, We're going to look at this call. Here we go. And verse four, it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Now, I don't know if you ever had a person in your life that you just seemed to, to kind of click with, almost like you, you knew them before you'd met them. And when you met him, it was like you had always known them. Now, I've been lucky enough, or for all the Christians out here, I've been blessed enough. <laughs> Got to wait for it sometimes. There it is. I've had this experience with my wife, Carrie, and uh, back in the day, we met at the University of Houston. Oh, oh wait, oh, wait we're, are we playing today? Is there a game today? I've heard there's a game. Sorry, don't get jealous. Okay, sorry. Anyway, all right, moving on. And when we met, we really we began to be fast friends. There was no uh, like attraction thing at first, but it was just like we had known each other before we'd ever met each other. And in a way, that's what God is telling Jeremiah here, except with a twist. He's saying, before I ever, ever formed you in your mother's womb, before that whole complex conception and pregnancy thing ever happened, before your father ever knew your mother, I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew you, Jeremiah. This is the word yada God's using here. It's a Hebrew word. It means to be intimate with, as in Adam knew Eve, as in a husband and wife know each other. God is using the language of unabashed, unfiltered, intimacy 
with the soul of Jeremiah. You see, in Jeremiah, before you were ever hurt by anyone, I knew you. Before you were ever betrayed or hurt by your mom or your dad, before you were ever traumatized by the nation you grew up in or the culture you experienced, I knew you. I've been intimate with you. And in a way, we're meeting here now, Jeremiah. I would say, Jeremiah, it's nice to meet you, but that wouldn't be true, would it? A better way of putting it would be, Jeremiah, it's nice for you to finally meet me. Now let's pause with all that in mind and just acknowledge this. Our our culture today, we talk a lot about identity, don't we? Yes, we do. We, we ask a lot of questions about identity. We do identity politics. We have identity theft. We watch movies called The Born Identity. It's a sign of the times, right? It's a person seeking to figure out the question, who am I? Who are you? Who, who are we? And there are many layers that answer that question, many layers to our identity, many ways we see ourselves and we're pressed to give an answer. And maybe if I were to ask you, who are you? You would identify first or most or deepest as a, a person of wealth. Or a person of poverty, a person of success, or you're an educated person, or a person who experiences same-sex attraction, or you're a person of color, or you're a person uh, from that country, or you're an immigrant uh, to our nation. But see, God's pressing here, no matter how you would answer that question, he's pressing Jeremiah to answer this question in a certain way, to see something else about himself before he sees anything else first. God's present Jeremiah us to give an answer to the question, who are you? What's your identity? How do you fit in the world? Now, I've got a friend. He's the, the world's most aptly named human being. His name is Keith Tower, and he's seven feet tall. How about that? And he's a pastor. He pastors High Point Church. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I mean, true and back in the day he used to play in the NBA saw what I did there yeah I get some <laughs> like stop there uh, <clears throat> he played against some guys you never heard of like Shaquille O'Neal who's that Michael Jordan never heard of him but Keith used to play against those guys back in the day and recently I was in Orlando Florida for some church meetings and and after we were done Keith came and picked some friends uh, of mine and I up to go to lunch and when he he picked us up he came to the hotel where we were at uh, in his car which was this car it was like a 1960 something uh Thunder Ford Thunderbird I think we got there we go we got a shot of it there that his father-in-law had given him pretty sweet yeah, and of course, Keith is so tall that when he gets out of the car and he starts to stand up, it's like go, go gadget. He starts, he stands and he stands and he keeps standing and he keeps on going up. And, and, he, and he got out of the car, he let us all back in, only two doors. Someone, this guy, got to sit behind that guy. And, and as he started to drive, I started to notice that he would either, in order to drive, either have to lean severely to one side or he'd have to crook his neck hardcore either way. And finally, I said to him, I said, are you sure this car was really made for someone like you? Here's what he said. He says, when you're me, no car was ever made for you. He said, I'm going to be uncomfortable no matter what I drive. So I just decided to drive something I like being uncomfortable in. Now, it's humorous, but it's also true of all of us in some kind of a way. And I think for some of us, That statement is true in many ways because if you're a minority person in our culture today, we should just acknowledge a lot of times you feel like Keith in his car. 
when it comes to our country, this country, and this culture, uh, you don't always fit because it wasn't made with you in mind. And sometimes it causes you not just discomfort, but real pain and, and real pain at many times. And that's important to acknowledge and to address and to see and to feel and to understand. But along with that, the Bible also says something else about all of us as human beings that goes a layer deeper than a skin color or a national status or socioeconomic status. It says in a way that the world doesn't fit anybody, anywhere, anytime, any human being from any culture, not just culturally but spiritually. The Bible says we've come broken by sin into a world broken by sin. And because we come like a broken puzzle piece, an edge frayed off, a, a side torn, a thing frayed, we don't fit in. We don't feel like we fit in to the larger picture. And Proverbs fourteen ten actually tells us this. I love this. Look at it. It says, each heart knows its own bitterness. And all God's people said, amen. But no one else can share its joy. It says, when you feel like no one else knows you, You're right. You're right. And when you look at someone else and you say, you'll never know what it's like to be me, you're right. You're right. It's totally true. And depending upon how unique you are, at what points of multiple, the intersection of multiple identity points you're standing at today, you can be doubly right, triply right. No one can ever truly understand you. Except there's an exception. And it's what God says to Jeremiah. And if it was true of him, hear me, it's true of you today. And so let me tell you the same thing. God knows you. It's so radical. Mind-blowing. It's just saying, God, you've got to get this, please. It's just saying, God says to him, he's been intimate with you before you were ever even conceived. I mean, it's like past any science fiction you've ever read. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, wrote a commentary on the life of Jeremiah, and this is what he says about that idea. He said, My identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There's something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks about me. That means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. Jeremiah's life didn't begin with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't begin with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. He entered the world in which the essential parts of his existence were already ancient history. So do we. So do we. Peterson's saying, there's something deeper to you than how you feel about you. There's something more essential to who you are than what the culture's told you or a label that you've gotten or what your parents have said about you or didn't say about you, what the mirror shows you. And aren't you so glad for that? You've got this. You've got a God who's not only known you before you were born, but in again, beyond your wildest imagination, he's been intimate with you before you were ever born, before you drew your first breath. You did anything good, bad, right, wrong. He has loved you. How could you reject someone who loves you like that, like that? I think the only way to answer the question, you could reject someone like that, is if you or I, we're using something else as our primary identity marker to use against God to reject Him. Maybe it feels too painful for you, for me, to give it up. 
That's what Jeremiah is doing right here. Look, when God says to him, hey, Jeremiah, I made you, hear me, son, to be a prophet. I got something for you to do and to be. Jeremiah says, can't do it. (laughs) Can't do it. Why, Jeremiah? Why can't you do or be the thing God says that you are, he's made you to be? Why can't you obey a God who loves you? Jeremiah says this, I'm too young. I'm too young. I can't do it because... I'm too young. What's he doing? Hear me. Jeremiah, in this moment, he is weaponizing his identity marker against God. Because in contrast to our culture, which prizes the young and discards the elderly, come on, his culture did the reverse. It prioritized the elderly, respected the the wisdom of age, and it rejected, it marginalized the young. So in saying, therefore, God, I'm too young to really follow you, to really obey you. He's saying my identity is in being inferior because, because I'm too young. And listen, by the way, whenever a culture systematically prizes one group over another, it's destructive for all the people, isn't it? When men are prioritized more than women, it hurts everyone, men and women. When one ethnicity is prized more than others, it's dehumanizing for everyone. And right here he's showing you when the youth are prized less than the elderly or the reverse, it's dehumanizing for everybody, right? That, 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 that prioritization hurts everybody. Jeremiah is saying, I'm inferior. Why? Not because he is, but because his culture has told him. Because his culture has told him that. So what's God doing here? He's telling him, don't use the thing which might even be true about you as your ultimate source of identity. Because there's something more true to you, there's something more essential to you than even what your culture has told you or how you feel about yourself. And Jeremiah, he says, with my love as the basis for who you are, you can be unstoppable in the world. Look at what God says. They will, oh, just in case you were wondering, will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I'm with you, I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Sort of the Bible's way of saying it. Sorry, I can't help this. He said, Jeremiah, hey, Jay, (laughs) you got a dab on them haters. (laughs) Forget them. Sorry, not sorry. God formed Jeremiah. The point is he's formed you, me, in his heart. We've got a better, truer basis for forming who we are. It's the love it's the word of God and the call of God. So, all right, let's move on. What, number two, what did God call then Jeremiah to do? What does he call us to do with this identity? He's going to show us if we'll put this as the basis for who we are, number two, we can live a life now of deeper justice. Deeper justice. Look at verse 10. He says, see, I, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So if... That first point, identity stuff, shows us God as a personal God. This is showing us as a God who's a social God. He cares about justice in the social sector. Because what's Jeremiah here? What's he says? What's God telling him he's supposed to talk about? Well, what are the people of God supposed to talk about? This is showing us. The answer is everything. (laughs) Everything. Nations, kingdoms. Tearing stuff up, tearing stuff down, planting stuff that needs to be planted. God's talking here about Jeremiah calling people to do better when it comes to the structures that break the world. And he's showing you sometimes it's the nations themselves that break the world. 
So why would God call Jeremiah to do this? Well, the call for deeper justice in the Bible is always set, you've got to catch this, against the background of one word, and that word is the word shalom. It's the Hebrew word shalom, and it means this. It means the way things ought to be. Uh, it's the Hebrew word for peace, but it doesn't just mean like no fighting, no conflict. It means the way things ought to be. And therefore, in that day, God raised up people like Jeremiah. He said, come on back, y'all. Come on back to the way things ought to be. You're not there. Let's go back. Right. Dr. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, he says, here's why shalom and justice go hand in hand. He says, the world is not like a lava cone, the product of powerful random eruptions. But the world is rather like a fabric. If you throw thousands of pieces of thread onto a table, no fabric results. The threads must be rightly, intimately related to each other in literally a million ways. Each thread must go under, over, around, and through the others at thousands of points. Only then do you get a fabric that is beautiful and strong that covers, fits, holds, shelters, and delights. It's a great image, isn't it? It is. And so he's saying, if the fabric, when the fabric doesn't go together, when you and I as threads in the human community, when we don't interconnect, when we don't weave our resources into each other and the world around us, if you just pull your thread out, you take your ball and you go home, he's saying society breaks down. Therefore, to do justice in the Bible sense is what this idea means. To do justice is to reweave the world. Reweave the world. Let me try to give you a visual because some of you are staring at me right now. All right. If you've, if you've ever seen the classic Tyler Perry movie, Medea's Big Happy Family. Maybe you know where I'm going with this. Medea, if you don't know who she is, let me just explain it or try to. It's a character played by Tyler Perry. Uh, and Medea is the old school grandmama. How many of you guys ever had one of those? Grand, old school grandmother tells everybody the way things ought to be. Right? And um, it doesn't put up with anybody's mess. Anyway, in the movie, Medea one day is hungry. And Medea wants a breakfast biscuit. And so Medea goes to the local breakfast place and goes and she drives to the drive-thru to get herself a breakfast biscuit. And she sits in line for more than 15 minutes. It's taking so long because the young lady working the drive-thru doesn't care. Doesn't care about uh, getting to service or taking care of people. And so she sits in line so long that by the time Medea gets to the drive-thru window and she orders her breakfast biscuit, she's told now it is 1031 and it's lunchtime. She can no longer have a breakfast biscuit. And, of course, you may imagine what happens next. If you know Medea, she don't play in the next scene because of her driving her car through the restaurant. Through the window, she pulls up right in front of the cash register, opens the door, hops out, goes right to the girl who's working the drive-thru and says, this doesn't make any dang sense. Hops over the counter, rumbles into the back in the kitchen, and finds herself a breakfast biscuit. (laughs) Now, it's funny, but it's also got a level of truth to it. Let's examine it, shall we? (laughs) When the young woman working the drive-thru, when she... When she pulled out her thread, right, when she didn't care about those working and those around her in the drive-thru, what happened? Well, there was a kind of a, a breakdown. And so what does Medea do? A kind of justice. She goes right to where the breach is happening. She confronts the person who's responsible for the breach breaking in her world anyway and says, this doesn't make any sense. And then she may or may not steal a biscuit from the kitchen, which I wouldn't advise. It's the whole, you know, Ten Commandments stuff. Thou shalt not 
steal, but it's Medea. It's a movie. She gets away with it. But you get the picture. Justice is going to where the breach is happening, saying this doesn't make any sense. And I am going to do something about it. Let's expand it for a moment and go a little level, level deeper. Let's think about the fact in our city, our area, our community, that you have children growing up who by the time they're middle school, high school, 14, 15, 16, they are in schools, but they're functionally illiterate. They're coming up through the drive through They're trying to order their future. For whatever reason they got there, it seems a little too late, right? Maybe the system isn't working for them somehow. They're coming up just short. And you know this, if you can't read or write in our increasingly information-oriented society, you are essentially locked into a cycle of poverty for the rest of your life. Now we should ask the question, why? Why is that happening? Why is it? Well, there's the liberal analysis and the conservative analysis. Liberal analysis says it's happening because of unjust social structures, the things not being managed properly from the top down. The conservative analysis says it's the breakdown of the individual, the person working at the drive-thru. But hear me, no one is saying it's the kid's fault. No one is saying it's Medea's fault, right, in the picture, in the image. Is it the fault of the social structure? Yes. Is it the fault of individuals, dysfunctional families? Yes, perhaps, maybe. But no one says it's the kid's fault. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, in this case, as Christian people, we ought to go to where the breach is. Uh, lots of breaches. Lots of places. But we can at least go to one, at least the breach in the child's life. And this is what this church, if you're new here, this church has attempted to do for many, many years. To do a kind of mishpat justice. Be a repairer of the breach. To use God's language to Jeremiah. To plant stuff that needs to get planted in a child's life. For many years, I, like a lot of you here, have been a mentor. If you're not one, you should be one. At Live Oak Elementary, now I'm at Deer Park, was assigned many years ago to a young man, not my same uh, ethnicity, uh, who one morning his father dropped dead in front of him on a school day. Was assigned to him. He was on his way to becoming a statistic. He was functionally illiterate, below all the scores, bad. So for years, I read to him. Every week, read to him. And by the time he finished elementary school, along with me and the, lots of his work from amazing, amazing teachers, he scored on the state reading test at an advanced placement level. Advanced placement level. Uh, and now he's in middle school. He's playing three sports. He's making A's in the classes he likes anyway. <laughs> you know how it goes if you have a middle schooler. But you get the picture. It was kind of a breach. Somebody steps in. Now the fabric's holding a little better. Listen, I'm nobody's savior. Neither are you. We're just doing what we're supposed to do. What we owe the human community. Such a simple way we can do this. But let's ask then, well, okay, all right, well, what happens then if and when a society won't do this? What if a culture only cares about itself? Well, we're about to see that right here in our story which is about to take a turn for the worse. Because if you know what happens next with Jeremiah, oh, the people, they don't listen. They don't listen to his call to come back to the covenant and love God, love their neighbor. They don't do justice. And so God gives now Jeremiah a vision of what's going to happen. He said, Jeremiah, second word of the Lord, he says, there's a boiling pot to the north of you. That boiling pot's going to spill over into your nation, not just disentangle the fabric, but it's going to melt your culture. Because no one cares about my covenant anymore. And one day that pot did boil over. It was the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, they invaded. 586, 87 BC. 
destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the Jewish temple. <clears throat> they took the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. They killed his sons, and they gouged out his eyes. So the last thing he would ever see would be the death of his two boys. Nebuchadnezzar put shackles on him, carried him off with the people to Babylon. The boiling pot was the end of a line for Israel as Jeremiah knew it. Their corruption had led to captivity. Oh, so heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking, but there was one more, and thankfully, one more vision, one more word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah in his call here that helped keep his soul alive in the middle of all he went through was this finally, number three, God spoke to him for future hope. What was it? Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? Oh, he says, I see the branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, you've seen it correctly. I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. So God gives him a vision of an almond tree. What's that mean? Well, this is a play on words here. This is a pun God's making. It doesn't come through in English because the word for almond tree sounds like the Hebrew word for watching. God's saying, I'm going to tell you something and I'm going to watch over it to make sure it happens. And every time, Jeremiah, you see an almond tree, which was the first tree to bloom in Palestine every year, you can believe that what I promise is going to happen. And one day, God gave Jeremiah the promise of a lifetime. Something he had never heard before. The prophets hadn't heard before. Something so incredible. He had to write it down. It was a future hope. God said to him, you know, my people? Yes, Lord. They're called Israel. Yes, Lord. They've broken my laws and covenant. Yes, Lord. Refused to love me or their neighbor. Yes, Lord. Uh, they're in exile now. I know they feel like a, like, a, like a mother whose children have been taken from them. But I've got something amazing. And it's going to come to pass. And one day, chapter 31 God said something to Jeremiah, which gave him hope in us today. The days are coming, declares the Lord. What I will make, here it is, a new covenant. With the people of Israel, the people of Judah, it won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Where had it been before? On stone. Now it's in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And one day later, the bud on the almond tree bloomed. The promise came to pass. How did it happen? Well, many years later, when Jesus Christ came into the world, one day, Matthew chapter 16, he asked his disciples a question. He asked them, who do the people say that I am? He said, I've been teaching. I hear rumors are talking about me. I've been healing. I've been ministering. I hear them whispering about me, talking about me. Disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said back to him, Jesus, uh, some people are calling you like John the Baptist. Back from my dip. Some people say you're like Elijah. But I also said to him, Jesus, some people are saying, you're just like Jeremiah. Out of all the prophets, they said, Jeremiah. Why would they call Jesus a Jeremiah? Because not only was Jeremiah a great prophet, not only was Jeremiah a man of sorrows who wept over his own people like Jesus would weep over his own people and over us, but Jeremiah's name meant 
The Lord hurls. The Lord throws. As in the Lord has thrown him into the world. The Lord has used him like an object, like a, like a, like a force to disrupt nature, to, to, to disrupt the corrupt, to, to shake up the status quo, and to comfort the hurting. The Lord hurled Jeremiah into his culture then. And they're saying, Jesus, oh, it feels like, it looks like God's using you to do the same thing now. You don't fit in like Jeremiah didn't fit in. And one day, oh, not long after he asked a question, because he didn't really fit in, because no one really knew him, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He was pierced for our sin. The punishment, it says, for our, here's the word, shalom, for the way things ought to be. The price for that was put on him by his stripes, his beatings, we can be healed. No one could keep this covenant. Israel couldn't do it. Even Jeremiah, great as he was, couldn't do it. But Jesus, standing in for you, standing in for me, standing in for Israel, he kept the covenant, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate covenant watcher, the ultimate covenant keeper. Why? So that we can now have a better covenant, a new covenant, not based on our own ability, glory to God, not based on our our ability, our medal, our merit, our status, our identity. Oh, but on his identity, on his merit, on his status. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that though human beings can't do it, God has. God did. Oh, friends, you got a better source of identity than you know. You have a call to deeper justice than you know. We've got a hope today that's going to carry us through our moments here and carry us on that day when all things are made new. Look, even at Israel's darkest moment, when it looked like all other lights had gone out, God was a light to them then. He wasn't through with them then, with us now, or with you or me today. And that is a true statement.